Good evening, good day everyone. It's great to be back with you. Welcome to episode 9 of Ask Abhijit. Today we discuss geopolitics and great power competition. So to start off, let me ask you a question. Ask yourself this question. Does India belong in the category of great powers, of great global powers? That's the question we need to ask ourselves before we even deal with this uh, particular topic. So I have once again got amazing questions from all of you. I've got so many questions. I'm going to have to do many more episodes of, of the geopolitics discussion. So I have chosen a bunch of your questions. I hope they are representative of many of the questions that you, you people have asked uh, several times. So without further ado, without wasting your time, let's get into question number one. So this is by Keshav Lada. Sometimes it seems that the USA is unpredictable. Sometimes, some days it will teach democracy. Sometimes it interferes in other countries' matters. And sometimes it is dormant. While we know that China is expansionist, so we can predict its, its geopolitical moves. How can we classify the form of geopolitics of countries and which form is the best? So what you are essentially asking is, what is geopolitics and which form of geopolitics is the best? So geopolitics is a sport. It is a sport that in which you make up the rules as you go. There are no written rules. Nothing is set in stone. And the objective of this sport is to basically acquire world domination, acquire control over the resources and territories and all the power and influence that is available in the world. That is the sport of geopolitics. There are no written rules. There is something called international law and all that, but that only applies to the weaker nations, not the top-ranking global leaders, right? The ones that indulge in great power competition. So the really powerful nations, such as the United States, Russia, China, and some others sometimes, these nations... They write the rules as they go along. Sometimes they will abide by the United, United Nations uh, uh, resolutions, etc. And sometimes they will break whatever is uh, whatever is called international law. They do as they seem fit in pursuit of certain objectives. So that is what we have to understand. What is geopolitics? What are the objectives? The objectives, like I said, is to acquire more territory, more power, more influence, control over resources. But at the core of the matter, geopolitics is about the national interest. It is the pursuit of the long-term national interest that every country is engaged in. So that is what geopolitics is. Now, which form of geopolitics is the best? So to answer this question, let's compare a few forms of geopolitics. Uh, the United States has been... Uh, essentially in the 20th century an imperialistic power it has uh, spread its influence everywhere it has military bases all over the world it has uh, a navy that sails every single ocean in the world right it has uh, soldiers in uh, basically on every continent and it has had a part to play in almost every war, whether it is overt or covert, visible or invisible. So that is what uh, the United States is. So it is pursuing global domination. That's what it has done over the 20th century. The Russians also did the same thing in the 20th century. They also played the same game, but not as successfully as the United States, which is why the Russians, which is why the USSR broke up, as we know very well. And the Chinese also 
pursue that same game of uh, relentless expansion and uh, expansion not just uh, of its of its uh, borders but also of its influence and its power and it does this by various means so this is what the united states does what russia does and what china does now let's compare that with what india's policy has been for since it was since it uh, became an independent country in 1947 so india's policy has been that of non alignment we will not uh, take any sides but while saying that we are non aligned we took the side of the U- of the ussr right we did not pursue our national interest we allowed ourselves to become weaker we pursued policies internal policies that kept us poor deliberately and uh, we did not deal with our uh, belligerent neighbors the way we should have so there is a different form of geopolitics we always preach idealism right india's track record has been of of uh, sloganeering and uh, talking about ethics and morality and uh, having an idealistic foreign policy in which you try to appease everybody at your own expense so what form of geopolitics is the best well as you can see india has not benefited from this uh, particular course of action which has which it has continued on for several decades so the best form of geopolitics is the pursuit of our of of once national interest it is called realism it's called real politic it has nothing to do with uh, morality or 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 ideologies or idealism idealism it's only about the long term objectives you achieve them any which way you can the chinese have a saying it doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice so that is the way to approach geopolitics you need to have an a certain long term objective in mind and then you have to do whatever it takes to reach there because at the end of the day a country's government and a country's leader has only one uh, has only one responsibility it is to serve and protect the interests of the country and its people a leader's job is not to serve and protect the interests of other countries and other people because they also have leaders who are doing that so every leader every government has to take care of its own internal matters of its own national interest and that is what geopolitics is supposed to be like it's supposed to be the pursuit of your national interest and your national power and to to understand that better you have to understand what the national interest is so that's what we will get into uh, during the course of this discussion so that is why the united states seems to be unpredictable that is why china behaves the way it is the united states is not predictable it is extremely predictable you can always predict you can always tell that it, it's going to follow its national interest it's going to do what suit suits it best and that is what the that is what geopolitics is all about so that i hope answers your question let's go to the next question Vaishali asks in the world of geopolitics who is india's most trusted friend good question this is a question that many many indians have and let me well explain what things are like there are no friends in geopolitics there are no friends there are no enemies there are allies and there are adversaries and alliances and adversarial engagements are always temporary in nature 
Nothing is permanent, nothing is set in stone. Let me give you an example. For the past two and a half thousand years, ever since China became, well, ever since China emerged as a civilization, two and a half thousand years ago, all this time, India and China have never had an adversarial relationship. Never in the past two and a half thousand years. It's only after the Chinese Communist Party under Mao Zedong came to power in the 1950s or thereabouts that India and China became adversaries. The adversarial relationship happened because of Chinese actions. It started with the conquest of Tibet, the illegal annexation of Tibet, and then they started having uh, designs on further Indian territory. So this is the first time in two and a half millennia that India and China have become an adversarial uh, relationship. So. For, for the longest time, India and China were very good, uh, not neighbors, because Tibet was always the common neighbor. But now you have this situation. Let's take another example, India and Russia. Like I said, India officially was non-aligned, but unofficially and for all real intents and purposes, it was an ally and a satellite of the Soviet Union during the so-called Cold War. Now, after the Cold War ended, after the USSR disintegrated, a new republic was born, Russia, the Russian uh, Union, Re Russian Republic. And relationship, the relationship between India and Russia hasn't been the way the India-USSR relationship was. This relationship is not black and white. It's not straightforward. It is not a, a straightforward uh, relationship. It is complicated, as, as, as we know. Re Russia is currently engaged in various other uh, relationships with countries such as China and Pakistan, which India would never have expected if, if it was the Cold War. So it Russia, Indians always look up on Russia as a great friend, right? But that was a relationship that was mutually beneficial at that time. Today, Russia finds benefit elsewhere. It still has a reasonably good relationship with India, but it isn't the way it was, right? It isn't unconditional the way it was in the, during the Cold War. So things change. Before 1947, there was no Pakistan, so we did not have any issue on the Western border. Today we have this issue because this new temporary nation exists there currently, and so on and so forth. So there are no friends. Okay, once again, we talk about Israel, and Indians love Israel. Israel is, a, is our bosom buddy, our great friend. India and Israel have shared interests. And that is why the relationship is so good. India and Israel are, in, a, in, in some ways, in a very similar position, in a very similar situation. So that is why the interests of these two nations converge to a great deal. And, and that is why there is such a great uh, amount of cooperation between the two nations. Things can change in the future, right? So there, are, there is nothing permanent in geopolitics. There are no friends or enemies, there are temporary alliances and temporary, temporary adversarial relationships. If we understand this, then we will be able to see the world for what it really is. It is a transient place. In geopolitics, the smallest unit of time is the decade. Nothing happens year after year. Okay, the, the, if you want to see change on the geopolitical level, you have to see it decade by decade. And if you see it that way, then you will see how how the alliances and even borders change from time to time. So that is the lens through which we must look upon geopolitics. It is the realistic 
lens lens not the idealistic lens we have to be realistic and pragmatic and recognize the fact that every nation has its own interests and when interests converge we're going to work together when interests diverge we're going to either drift apart or even become adversaries so that's how it works next question anmol asks will china be the next hegemonic power in the next 50 years good question so it's all about understanding what china is and what china aspires to be so i would say that china has already become to some extent a hegemonic power it already has occupied the so called south china sea it claims the whole the entirety of that region even though there are so many other countries that have competing claim, claims it does it on the basis of its naval muscle and military muscle it is uh, riding roughshod over japan on the uh, in the uh, diao uh, senkaku islands senkaku not diaoyu and it is uh, bullying the philippines it's bullying every single uh, nation with which it has a common border it's even gone to the extent of trying to claim vladivostok from the russians so that is what china is doing and not just this bullying because of its economic and military muscle it has infiltrated over time step by step in a systematic manner every single global institution such as the united nations the world health organization and much more so today china can run its writ anywhere it wants that's the uh, status it has already achieved it has laid debt traps on many poor nations it has uh, entangled the western nations in these uh, economic and uh, mercantile webs it has infiltrated the united states hollywood is, a, is a essentially an organ a propaganda organ of china the united states media is essentially kowtowing to china it has refused to even question what's happening inside china in the past year and a half so china has already achieved a significant degree of hegemony so yes china aspires to be a hegemonic power in the next 50 years now i would like to go a little further into this and try and let's try and understand what china is like so every nation has a certain character and personality of it of its own which is uh, which is predicated on its culture essentially and civilization and you will see these patterns of behavior with each nation over centuries so russia has a very 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 uh, distinctive character as a nation and you can see this over the past 1000 years the chinese have a very distinctive nation uh, character as a nation india the same and the uh, arabic world also so every culture has some distinctive patterns that of behavior that repeat over and over again and here's the thing about china china is china is not has never been a country with a great deal of military prowess china is an extremely conservative nation it is extremely averse to risk taking and that is something you see over the centuries and over the past 2000 years china has fought many great wars and let me point this out my friends all of these great wars that china has fought have been civil wars they have been fought within various chinese dynasties and and kingdoms and empires and they have led to shocking loss of life in the orders of in the order of tens of millions of uh, human lives lost and that is a pattern that recurs over history again and again its major wars are within those are civil wars china is extremely 
extremely reluctant to fight wars outside its territories. And whenever it has been invaded by a strong power, China has invariably lost and become occupied. China was occupied by Tibet in the 8th century. The Tibetans captured the, the capital of China. And nobody knows this today. Right? The Japanese kept, uh, conquered most of China uh, about 100 years, less than 100 years ago. The Mongols, I have spoken the, about this at length. The Mongols took over China and established the Yuan dynasty there. And much more. Whenever a strong power has invaded China and brought the battle on Chinese soil, the Chinese have always lost. The Chinese will bully only weak nations. China is extremely reluctant to fight real wars. And sometimes it bites it's bite off it bites off too much much more than it can chew in the 19 in in 1967 it tried to repeat 1962 with india and it lost that war which our media and our textbooks will not tell us about india beat china in the 1967 war and in 1979 if i am not mistaken china tried to invade vietnam it was a disastrous defeat at the hands of vietnam so the chinese have a very, very patchy and inglorious military history. They will bully you when you're weak. That's what they did to India in 1962. The moment you take the battle on their own soil, the Chinese defenses invariably crumble. And this is something the world needs to recognize. So China's hegemony is non-military. China is building a lot of military muscle, but it hopes to never have to go to war. It hopes to never have to fight anything except a small power like the Philippines or Taiwan. It doesn't ever want to fight a great power. And that's the thing about China. The military muscle is for the sake of deterrence only. It will never dare fight Russia. It will never dare fight the United States, despite its, its uh, shrill rhetoric. So we have to understand these things about China. There's a great deal more than meets the eye. So that's a, so the Chinese hegemony is basically predict, predicated on its economic muscle, on the visible military muscle that it has acquired, on the technologies that it is acquiring. It has bought technologies, begged technologies, stolen technologies. It is now uh, one of the technological giants in the world. It is especially advanced in the, in the field of cyber warfare. It has a very good space program. It has lots of military satellites. It's launched more than 20 satellites this year. Most of them are spy satellites. So China is investing in the future. It's investing in future hegemony, but it intends to never fight a kinetic war. The Third World War will not be kinetic in nature. It will be something very different. So China, yes, unless something untoward happens, something that they have not planned, unless something like that happens, China will most likely be the next hegemonic power in the next 50 years because the United States is receding as a power. It is beset by internal troubles. It has lost its moorings. It has lost its uh, appetite for expansion like it had in the, uh, in the 20th century. So unless something, uh, something unexpected happens from unexpected quarters, China may very well become the hegemon in the next 50 years. That's the answer. Okay, Akash asks, Russia and China's relationship has strengthened. Should we be concerned? Excellent question. This deals with Russia and China. Russia and China have a complicated relationship, to say the least. What you are actually asking is, does Vladimir Putin 
trust Xi Jinping? Does Russia trust China? So that is the issue we have to really look into to, in order to answer this question. So yes, right now Russia and China seem to be allies. They are working together on various global international forums. They have alliances in various places, in Iran, for example, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, and many other places. You have the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization. Some, it's called something like that. And they are cooperating on many other fronts. So there seems to be a great deal of cooperation and work in tandem between these two powers. But let's look under the hood, shall we? Because if you know history, if you study history, then it tells you much more than what you can see at the surface level today. So let's uh, let's uh, peel back the layers of this relationship and let's just go back less than 100 years. Let's. Uh, so when China became... Uh, when Mao Zedong and the Communist Party took over China, they defeated the Kuomintang, the Kuomintang in Chiang Kai-shek, exiled the Kuomintang to Taiwan. So that's when Mao became the undisputed supreme leader of China, the dictator of China. And Mao Zedong was greatly, greatly inspired by Joseph Stalin. So Mao, Mao Zedong aspired to be like Joseph Stalin and acquire the kind of power and uh, and untrammeled uh, influence that Joseph Stalin had. So he hero-worshipped Stalin. But Stalin always treated Mao Zedong like a junior colleague, right? So that was the relationship between Mao and Stalin. After Stalin died, uh, I think it was Nikita Khrushchev who came to power. And Mao Zedong and Nikita Khrushchev uh, tried to have a good relationship between the two countries. But again, the Russians were way more powerful and way larger than the Chinese. And they always treated Ch the Chinese with disdain. So this, in brief, led to something called the Sino-Soviet split. So despite being Marxist, communist, socialist nations, these two countries drifted apart and they actually became adversaries. It came to the point that Russia not under Khrushchev, but under uh, Brezhnev, even contemplated a nuclear strike on the Chinese because things were getting out of control. So let me uh, talk about the events of 1969. And let me do that by showing you a map. So let's go to this map. We all know, can you see my pointer? Yeah, you can see my pointer now. So we know where India is. Let's go eastwards. Let's zoom in. This is occupied Tibet. And Xinjiang, we go eastwards. This is China. And this here is Russia. If you can see my pointer, this is Russia, present-day Russia. And Russia extends all the way down south here to Vladivostok, which is just north of North Korea. So in 1969, somewhere around here, let me find the region. Let me find the place. This is the boundary of Russia and China. It is the Yusuri River. This river forms the present boundary of Russia and China, the present international border. So in 1969, over here at Zhenbao Island, what is now known as Zhenbao Island, in 1969, this island was in Russian, it, it was Russian territory. So in 1969, the Chinese army launched a military raid on this island and it killed dozens of Russian soldiers. And the Russians retaliated, killed many more Chinese and the nations were at war. It was an undeclared war over this particular island. And things went so bad, like, like I said, the Russians even contemplated a nuclear strike on China. And this escalated much further beyond this particular region. It went 
the the tension spilled over to Xinjiang. So Russia and China, this is, as you can see, it's north of India. My pointer is here. Between Mongolia and Kazakhstan, there's a little piece of uh, land about 50 kilometers long or so, which is the border between Russia and China. It, over here also, there was a border clash. So the situation was very tense between these two countries. It was kind of like what we have on the India-Tibet border currently. So there were armed clashes, people died, soldiers died, and things nearly went very bad. But then the Americans intervened and Richard Nixon threatened the Russians with war if they nuked China. So the Americans saved China from being nuked by the Russians. And this border dispute lasted for a very long time between Russia and China. Uh, the Shenbao Island was uh, properly demarcated, this, this region, in 1991 only. And it was only in 1998 that Russia and China finally completely demarcated their border. And yet, China keeps raising issues with, with the border. It kind of recently tried to claim Vladivostok, the port of Vladivostok. So this situation under the hood is very complicated. It's quite tense. There is a lot of history. and There's a lot of, a lot of bad blood between Russia and China. And you may not know this, but Russia has pointed nuclear missiles at China long-range ballistic nuclear missiles. And even on the stretch of border I showed you between uh, in, in north of Xinjiang, Russia has deployed short-range Iskander ballistic missiles, nuclear ballistic missiles, and pointed them towards China. As we speak right now, that is the situation. So should we be concerned about the Russia-China relationship? And the real question is, does Vladimir Putin trust Xi Jinping? So. My question is, do you think Vladimir Putin trusts anybody? He does not. Vladimir Putin is a hard realist. He does not trust China. He doesn't trust Xi Jinping. He knows that he is in a militarily advantageous, advantageous situation compared to China. He has an enormous military. He has a military so strong that even the Americans are afraid of it. The disadvantage he has is that he has a very long border and a great amount of land that is closer to China than to Moscow. So this situation is still very tense despite external appearances. I do not see Russia and, and China having a good long-term relationship. It will eventually go south again because China's ambition is to be the sole power the sole uh, geopolitical power in the world. It will not countenance a second power center anywhere. And that is what it's working towards. So eventually, sooner rather than later, the relationship is going to turn bad. It's only a matter of time. But when that happens is to be seen. Will it happen this decade or the next one? Most likely, for the for the time being, at least, it's going to be a reasonably good relationship these next five or ten years at most. And then as China gets more powerful, Russia will feel threatened and you will see something happening, something very interesting happening. So that's your the answer to your question. It's a good question, very good question. Vandit Singh asks... Iran, despite being a hostile partner to Indian interests, especially in Kashmir, and Hassan Rouhani regularly demeaned India on a global level, also went along very well with Imran Khan, despite a bad relationship between, between Iran and Pakistan. 
what do i think how should india approach the iranian question especially when we are dependent on iran being the center of the proposed trade route from mumbai to moscow this is an excellent question so that's the this is a very very good question and right now you may have heard the news that iran has entered into an agreement with china a long term strategic agreement which involves in a very significant uh, amount of chinese investment into iran to the tune of uh, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars and so that is the concern for india and the media has been very vocal and shrill about it and the media has been saying that india and iran are natural allies etc so the indian government has messed up by by forcing the in, the iranians into the chinese hands into the into china's arms so how much is the truth to it so what is the relationship between india and iran so i like i have said in the history sessions india and iran are essentially the same people we are the same ethnicity the persians came from india from from the rigvedic parshva clan and so so they are essentially uh, a descendant of ancient indians and for a very long time india and, and persia had a very good relationship as cordial neighbors and like like uh, far away cousins and this started changing about 1400 or so years ago with the arabic conquest of iran so iran was overrun by the arabs in no time at all it was a very quick and and comprehensive conquest and what happened very quickly in iran was a complete change of culture so the iranians became part of the uh, the sphere of influence of the arabs they became part of the islamic world and they essentially uh, looked up started looking upon india as as an alien culture as a diff- very different culture so this is when the first proper split between india and persia happened and then the relationship was not very good it was rather antagonistic the iranians used to be employed as uh, many iranians persians were employed by the moguls in their courts as administrators officers etc etc so they were essentially agents of the foreign foreign occupying force and then the straw that broke the camel's bra- the ba- that broke the camel's back was nadir shah's invasion of india in which he committed unbelievable atrocities he drenched delhi in a in a in a river of blood and took away a great deal of uh, treasure from delhi so in the past 1000 or so years india and iran have had a reasonable rather bad relationship iran today the people of iran kind of look upon india as a country that was defeated in the past as a conquered land and a conquered people and there is a sort of superiority complex to some extent uh, in some quarters of iran now let's look at iran geopolitically so so the the question of india and iran being nat- natural allies doesn't arise on a cultural level at least today the people of iran are a very different culture they are very nice people by the way very friendly very very good people but culturally they are very different from the people of india so the natural allies argument doesn't really hold now geopolitically what is iran's uh, conduct like what are their ambitions what are their geopolitical ambitions so let's look at how they have uh, conducted their affairs in the past so they were once an american satellite under mohammed mosaddegh uh, they were essentially uh, being uh, used for oil by the americans and then uh, you had the shah pahlavi 
Mossadegh uh, was not an American uh, puppet. Pahlavi was an American puppet. Mossadegh was, a, I believe, a democratically elected leader of Iran who was overthrown. And uh, Shah Raza Pahlavi became the king of Iran. He was an American puppet. Then he was overthrown by the in the 1979 uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran when the Ayatollahs came to power. And that is the regime that's currently in Iran. So Iran is a very active geopolitical player. It has, despite its, its uh, relative small size, despite its small economy, despite being under incredible sanctions, it still has a strong military. It has a very powerful presence outside its borders. It has a very strong spy agency and it, it interferes and tries to shape the affairs of of various nations. There is a very strong Iran and Saudi Arabia rivalry. Iran has a very strong uh, undercover presence in Iraq, in Syria. Uh, It's arming the Houthis who are fighting the Saudis. So there is a presence in Yemen as well. And Iran aspires to be a nuclear weapons power. So this this is a country with oversized geopolitical ambitions. It essentially aspires to resuscitate the Achaemenid Empire, the Hakshamanish Empire. It wants to become an imperial power again. Now imagine this country, Iran, with nuclear weapons. Do you think it will behave in the same nice way as it does today? Hell no. Iran will be a very different beast if it acquires nuclear weapons. Nobody will be safe. Nobody in its neighborhood will be safe from its from being from having nuclear weapons pointed at them. Not Pakistan, not Saudi Arabia, not India. And Iran's geopolitical interests are in no way convergent with India's. India wants to be a a force of stability in Asia. India does not want warfare and and conflicts. Iran, on the other hand, has been itching for conflict for the past for the since 1979. It's been embroiled in so many conflicts. Some are open conflicts. Some are covert conflicts. So Iran, in a sense engages in proxy wars everywhere. It behaves just like Pakistan has been behaving in Kashmir, in other places. So Iran and India do not have anything in common, almost. The people of Iran are very nice. At the people-to-people level, we sh- we still share a great deal with them. But on a, on a national geopolitical level, Iran and India have nothing in common. It is by no means a natural ally. The interests are very divergent. Right now in Iran, in the past two or three decades, India, Iran was trying to uh, cultivate a good relationship with India for the sa- and sell oil to India so that it can get some money and some cash because it was desperately short of cash. But now that the Chinese influx has happened, which was bound to happen anyway, uh, it has no more need for India. So we need to basically forget about Chabahar. We need to find other ways of expanding, of, of securing our long-term national interests. So this is how India should approach Iran. India should by no means see Iran as a trusted partner, as a geopolitical ally, or like like Indians would say, a friend. Iran is not a friend. Iran is pursuing its own independent geopolitical ambitions. Currently, it is betting on China because it is desperate. There are too many sanctions. The Chinese are very happy to help out because it helps their geopolitical ambitions. So like I said, their interests converge for the time being. How long will it last? Will it last? We don't know. The Iranians have basically 
sold out to the Chinese and I wonder what price they will end up paying. So once again, to answer your question, Iran and India are not geopolitical, they are not natural geopolitical lies. We, our interests don't align in any way. Iran has always supported Pakistan historically. And as we know, Kulbushan Jadav was abducted from Iran and uh, he was handed over to the Pakistanis. So this again is kind of a backstab if you see see the whole situation properly. So India and Iran can uh, basically, to make it short, India cannot trust Iran. So that is the situation. That's the answer to your question. A very good question. This is by Richik Nair. Is it possible for India to get back POK, Pakistan-occupied Kashmir and Aksai Chin, which is a part of Ladakh that's currently occupied illegally by China? If so, what should India do to get back our territories? China is trying to dam the Himalayas, block water supply. Is India doing enough? This is important considering the increase in water crisis. Why is India not utilizing its geographical position to strengthen the Navy and take control of the Indian Ocean? all the way from East Africa to Indonesia. What should our leaders be doing? Very good question, sir. So let's deal with the first question first. POK and Aksai Chin. So the best way to achieve certain objectives is to be patient and desist from doing anything rash. Aksai Chin and POK have been in, in foreign enemy hands for many decades. There is no need to try and grab it right now. No need to try and rush. It is Indian territory. It is legally and historically the territory that belongs to India's civilization. So we should regard it as such, but we should have a long-term geopolitical plan that stretches beyond Aksai Chin and Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. So if our objective, if our sole objective is to get back this little POK, this little Aksai Chin, it is going to be a very transient situation. It may again go back in the enemy hands. But if our ambition is to free Tibet from illegal Chinese occupation, then both the problems will be solved. We want a peaceful northern border. The border has always been historically India and Tibet. It's never been India-China. So we want our sphere of influence back. It's not about our sphere of influence. It's about freeing the Tibetan people who have endured decades of atrocious, of incredible atrocities and, and cultural and other genocide at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. So India's long-term objective over the next 10 to 20 years should be to engineer a way of freeing Tibet, of, of restoring Tibet to its independence, which would cut the Chinese off from the from Pakistan and Kashmir, and then we would be able to deal with that situation separately. The real threat, the real adversary that uh, we have, that India has from an Indian perspective, is not Pakistan, it is China. China is the real threat. And India needs to find a long-term solution to deal with China. And if we are able to achieve that, then POK and Aksai Chin and much more will revert to its historic civilizational natural state over a over a reasonable period of time. It will not happen overnight. We need to plan for the next 20 years and for the next 50 years and even for the next 100 years. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And we have to have the right kind of... Uh, uh, right kind of... We have to understand that this is not going to happen overnight. We have to have realistic expectations 
this is a multi-generation project to restore India back to its uh, to its rightful civilizational status. So it is not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in the next five years. Maybe it will happen in the next 10 or 20 years. If India plays its cards right, if the Indian leadership behaves like a real, real leadership and has ambitions for India on a civilizational scale. In, on, in that case, it will happen. It is a matter of time. Now to answer your next question, why is India not utilizing its geographical position to strengthen the Navy and take control of the Indian Ocean region? Uh, that's a very good question. So let me again show the geography here. Okay, where are we? Let me remove the question. Okay, now you can see it better. So this is the Indian Ocean region. Can you see the God-given position that India is in? It straddles this enormous piece of naval real estate. It is the gateway to this, the east, east of Asia and to the west of Asia. It can choke off if it has a strong navy, it can choke off uh, this strait over here, the Strait of Malacca. It can even influence uh, what happens in the Strait of Djibouti over here. So India is in a God-given geographical position. No country has such a beautiful geographical position and such an advantageous geographical position from a naval perspective. And yet, what are we doing? What sort of navy do we have? We have a navy that isn't enough isn't even sufficient to patrol our immense uh, naval uh, boundaries. Our Navy's strength is not enough to patrol the entirety of our coast. So it's not, it's basically nothing more than a glorified Coast Guard through no fault of its own. It's because India's governments over decades have have neglected the Navy. They have failed to invest in bu building a Navy that befits a nation of India's size. That is the situation. India has how many submarines? 14, 15, 17? North Korea has more than 50 submarines. A small little country like North Korea has three times or more submarines than India does. I mean, that is a ridiculous situation that we are in. To safeguard our national interests, we need to have a strong navy. And we keep repeating the slogan that... Uh, that the Indian Ocean region is India's strategic backyard. Well, it doesn't become your strategic backyard with the power of slogans. You have to do something to, to achieve that. What India needs to do is invest very strongly in a powerful Navy, a Navy that can defend its long-term national interests. It's not about bullying others or expanding into other people's uh, territories. It's about defending India's national interest, long-term national interest. So India needs to significantly boost its naval strength. And if India were to achieve that, if India has a powerful navy, then it can use the Indian Ocean region to make the Chinese behave in the north. Because if India is in a position to choke off the Malacca Strait, which would choke off all supplies to China, then China would be forced to ret retreat and stop playing mischief in the north, in the India-Tibet border region. So India should be investing in a powerful navy. And unfortunately, as of now, it's not happening. I am hopeful that India will do that in the future. So that is the way forward. India has always been a maritime nation. India needs to take inspiration from its history and reclaim its long-term national interest by bolstering the navy manifold, much more than what it is today. So that's a great question. Shashank asks, what's the future of Afghanistan after the NATO withdrawal? Can there possibly, can there be 
a possibility of another civil war and would there be any spillover in india so the future of afghanistan after after the nato withdrawal is that afghanistan will fall under the chinese influence it's already being worked out in uh, behind the scenes there's going to be a great deal of chinese influence there will be some russian influence and that pakistanis will get some crumbs they may be allowed to have the taliban run parts of the country and so on but it's overall advantage china the chinese have been conducting negotiations between the taliban and the pakistanis and the russians are also involved and these countries are going to decide the the immediate uh, fate of afghanistan at least in the short term so afghanistan is not going to benefit from nato withdrawal uh, it's going to fall under chinese uh, hands by proxy not overtly but by 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 proxy the taliban probably will serve as a proxy for the chinese like they used to serve for a, as a proxy for the pakistanis and the pakistanis will be kept happy by the by the chinese and russia also is involved in certain ways russia is getting involved in this region in pakistan as well as afghanistan so that is the immediate future for afghanistan will there be a civil war absolutely not there will be some spurts or bursts of violence you know some uh, some shows of violence by the taliban to show that we are in, we are in control but overall the chinese do not want any deteriorate de- deterioration of the situation they want things to be stable so that they can start mining afghanistan and extracting its resources like the like the, there are these ancient uh, buddhist sites which are sitting on enormous uh, deposits of copper mess ainak or something like that that's the name if i recall it correctly so the chinese want to extract exploit these natural resources that afghanistan has to offer and that's what they're going to start doing once the americans get out of afghanistan so that is the immediate uh, course of action that we're going to see very soon and the russians will also take some of it so that is the immediate future for afghanistan there will not be any civil war and there will most likely not be any spillover in india in 1989 or thereabouts when the russians when the ussr withdrew from afghanistan there was a spillover into india and the entire kashmir conflict exploded and the indian government just sat and watched and did nothing this time we have a very different government the pakistanis know that if any misadventure happens things will escalate from our side so i do not foresee any spillover into india nothing overt at least there may be some small upsurge in certain events but i don't see any real spillover into india the real loss for india will be the loss of everything it has invested into afghanistan india has been investing billions of dollars into rebuilding afghanistan and uh, and and bringing afghanistan back on its feet after the terrors the horrors it has experienced all of that is going to be is going to most likely go to waste if this happens so the thing is india is not able to to influence its its uh, near abroad afghanistan is essentially our near abroad it's our ancient territory the the people of of afghanistan are the same ethnicity as us and india has tried to to try and help them but as you can see the efforts are not uh, sufficient thus far so in the in the future will india do some uh, do something else to try and uh, reclaim to regain some sort of uh, influence in afghanistan that's what needs to be seen i hope that we are able to prevent 
a complete Chinese takeover of Afghanistan. But as of now, India is not in a situation to immediately do any of that. So immediately in the next few in the in the next few years, Afghanistan is going to become a Chinese satellite. That's how I see it happen. Right. Next question. Gagan asks, what is the probability of a nuclear holocaust? The probability of a nuclear holocaust is minimal. See, even during the Cold War, when tensions were at an incredibly high pitch from time to time, the United States and the Russians never ever uh, actually went to war. There was never a hot war. There was never a single missile launch. And the only time missile, uh, nuclear weapons have been used was during the Second World War at the end in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So nuclear weapons are essentially a form of deterrence. It says that if you mess with me, I'm going to destroy you. But it's mutually assured destruction to the most part. When you have two powers that are equal or near equal in strength, or even if one power, even if one country has only 20 nukes, it is still too big of a, of a risk to to really uh, to cross its red lines. And even somebody like Kim Jong-un, who is now the owner of a bunch of nuclear weapons, he's portrayed by the Western media as a crackpot, as a crazy person, but he's not. He's not. Nobody is crazy enough to actually use nuclear weapons in the in, in a in a conflict. Not unless everything is going to be lost. Then they may, if, if they have nothing to lose, they may use nuclear weapons. But that eventuality, eventuality is extremely unlikely. Nuclear weapons are only uh, a means of deterrence. And the probability of a nuclear holocaust is very remote. That is what I hope, at least. That is what I foresee. The real thing, the real conflicts are going to be below a certain threshold. The, most of the conflicts in the future will be non-kinetic, especially be, between great powers. So the probability of a nuclear holocaust, of, of a nuclear war, is, in my opinion, very less. Saurabh asks, it is very stupid to ask this, but I could not find any other place. So uh, kindly discuss the breaking of the USSR, its reasons who is responsible for this and its effect on Indian politics and world politics. No, it is not a stupid question by any means. It's a great question. And uh, so let's deal in, deal with this. Why did the USSR break up? So it broke up in the early 1990s, I think, um, 91 or thereabouts. But the process of the breakup started much before that. So the Cold War between the United States, between the Western Bloc and the Eastern Bloc, that is between the United States and its allies, NATO, and between the USSR and its allies, the so-called Soviet bloc, this conflict was an ideological conflict. It was about which system is better, which system is superior. The Western uh, quasi-liberal, quasi-democratic capitalistic system or the Soviet socialistic system. Which system was better, which system was superior? It was an ideological conflict. And what the Soviets did after Stalin's death, after Nikita Khrushchev came to power, was they started making uh, pronouncements like we are not, uh, like basically they were to some extent admitting that their system had problems. So Nikita Khrushchev did that, uh, Brezhnev, did, Brezhnev did that, and then uh, 
Mikhail Gorbachev started this uh, policy of perestroika and glasnost, which was op- more openness, more transparency and more self-criticism. So essentially what happened was that their standing among their allies and even among their own people started to crumble, it started to fall. That the moral high ground and ideological superiority that Marxism and communism had held and the so and that the so uh, the Soviet Communist Party had held, it started crumbling, and Mikhail Gorbachev is, is one of the main architects of this by his policies of perestroika and glasnost. So some people say that he was he was uh, a Western mole in the USSR. So we don't know how true or false it is, but his actions eventually precipitated what happened in the early 90s when all the other Soviet republics, the Central Asian republics, etc., they all declared independence because over time, because of this perestroika and glasnost uh, uh, policies, the Communist Party lost power gradually, the power eroded away. And then these republics were emboldened enough to declare independence from the USSR. And the USSR broke up overnight. So this was all engineered gradually, step by step, iteratively, by the West, by the United States. And they succeeded in the early 90s. So that is why the USSR broke up. It was a great success on the part of the United States. And then they were able to to install someone like, uh, like Yeltsin, who was not a very good leader, and under whose uh, regime the US, the the Russian nation basically declined to a to a very to a very poor state, and it's when uh, Vladimir Putin came to power that he restored gradually the power of the Russian military. So today, even though Russia is not even among the top ten economies in the world, it's most likely either number one or number two in the most powerful militaries in the world. Even the Americans don't really want to mess with the Russians and they are developing more technology and much more powerful weapons all the time. So that's why the USSR crumbled. It was all engineered slowly, steadily, gradually by the West. And the policies of Mikhail Gorbachev, Perestroika and Glasnost were the last straw which broke the dam. So that's why it broke up. And after it broke up, it did have an effect on India. India was lost. India lost its great benefactor. And the Russian nation that emerged out of the USSR's ruins had a very different approach towards India. It was no longer the same kind of benefactory, beneficial uh, partner. It was more It was more pra- pragmatic and realistic, and it was not inclined to support India in everything. So India and Russia have slowly drifted apart. India's... Uh, Diplomats were lost. They are still, even today, some of them are still uh, mired in this Cold War mindset. So these things need to change. So it had a great deal of impact on world politics. The whole polarity of the world changed. The world became unipolar for quite some time. Only one superpower was left, the United States. And now we can say that there is a new superpower on the horizon, which is China. So things changed a lot after the breakup of the USSR. It had a great deal of uh, repercussions the world over. So that's a great question. Okay, Om asks, what are my thoughts on terrorism and countries such as Russia and America that are supporting them sometimes and are against them sooner or later? 
why are we still in the 21st century having to prepare for war all the time? See, one has to prepare for war all, all the time. If you aren't ready for war, you will never have peace. It's only by preparing for all eventualities that you can have lasting peace. That is the lesson of history. That's what history has told us. It's what history teaches us. Teaches us. If you examine the history of the past 2000 or 5000 years, if you are always in a state of readiness for war, that is when you will have lasting peace. Now about terrorism, you are right. America and uh, even the Russians have had a very ambiguous stand against terrorism. So when in 1989 onwards, this terrorism, Pakistani terrorism started in Kashmir, the Americans kept dismissing it as a law and order problem. It's an internal matter of law and order. You guys are not taking care of your law and order. They refused to countenance the truth, which was that Pakistan was infiltrating terrorists into in large numbers into Kashmir. So they did not support, they were very much basically tolerant of terrorism then. When 9-11 happened, their stance changed 180 degrees and they became, they launched this global war on terror. And yet they did not ever sanction Pakistan for its continuing terrorism into India. So it's always been a dual approach. And the same goes with Russia. They are also sometimes supported some forms of terrorism, what you could call terrorism. Sometimes they have not. The Americans are involved in the Middle East for for ages, and they do support certain outfits and certain factions that can be considered to be terrorist outfits. So it's a it's a very ambiguous stand. And to understand why it is so, we have to understand what is the national interest of the United States and what is the long-term objective. That's all. They are simply pursuing their own national interest. They are doing what is best for them. They are trying to achieve their objectives. So sometimes they will support one group other, other times they will destroy that group. They, they propped up Saddam Hussein for a very long time and eventually they destroyed Saddam Hussein. Right? So it's not, it's not an ambiguous policy. They are simply looking out for their best interests and interests change. Situations change. And when circumstances change, you take different actions. So that's what happens. There is, there is no such thing as ethics and morality in geopolitics. The only thing that matters is the hard national interest and what you intend to do in the long run. And you will do that. You, you want to achieve that by any means possible. And that's what we see. So that is why there is this ambiguous stand on terrorism. Sometimes you support it. Sometimes you fight it. So it's all about pursuing your long-term objectives and strengthening your national interest. Akash asks, Democrats or Republicans who have historically been more friendly with India. So right now the perception is that the Democrats are not friendly with India at all. They are very anti-India and that, that perception is correct. But historically, how's it been? Right? So when India became independent in 1947, uh, I think it was Harry Truman who was in power, who was the president of the United States in in 1945, he became president. He was a Democrat. And it was while he was the president, a Democrat, that the United States offered India a place, a permanent place in, this, uh, in the Security Council, in the United Nations Security Council. The United States made India the offer on a platter. We are offering you a permanent place on the United Nations Security Council. And they did this together with Russia. So America and Russia both made this offer to India. So the Democrats 
did this but our uh, great prime minister mr uh, jawarlal nehru declined he said that we don't want this we you need to put china first we cannot do this unless china is first given its rightful position in the world so mr nehru declined this offer and he said please put china first in the united nations security council then in 1955 when uh, dwight eisenhower was the president of the united states he was a republican the united states and russia again offered india a permanent position on the united nations security council and once again mr nehru shri jawarlal nehru refused he said not at the cost of china and mr nehru ensured that china became a permanent member of the of this united nations security council india still is is not in that position so we lost the opportunity so a democrat offered it first then a republican offered offered the same thing then when john f kennedy became the president of the united states in uh, 1961 he offered india he offered to transfer nuclear technology to india he offered this to jawaharlal nehru he wanted india to be an american ally against countries such as china and russia so he offered to transfer full scale nuclear weapons technology to india and our great prime minister shri nehru declined he said that we are not interested in war we are a peaceful nation and then 1962 happened so john f kennedy was a democrat so historically republicans as well as democrats were very positively inclined towards india they offered a great deal to india india always rebuffed them and that's when americans the americans understood that india does not intend to be a nation of any significance of any kind so they turned their backs of on india they started cultivating pakistan and under nixon they started cultivating china as well and so india by its own doing by the doing of its great prime minister mr nehru india became reduced to uh, a geopolitical backwater of the world now today it is true that the democrats are very much more anti india than the republicans uh that's a, that's a pattern that we see for a very long time even uh, bill clinton was very much anti india so even when bill clinton was the, was the president of the united states it was very much an anti india kind of regime so that's a that's a pattern that we see over the over the past few decades but at the very beginning both parties were they they both tried to engage india in a very positive and constructive manner and it's only because of uh, mr nehru's idealism and uh, and and uh, his desire to be a, a a great moral statesman that this situation eventually happened so that's the answer to this question biswarup bhattacharji asks what can india do to become a superpower and which country is the best, biggest friend i will answer question number 1 what can india do to become a superpower so one cannot learn how to sprint before one learns how to jog and one cannot learn how to jog before one learns how to walk properly so india is currently learning how to walk that is where we are at so we must not have oversized ambitions today i understand that we have waited long enough that now we are a more a slightly more prosperous nation and we are we, our young people are full of ambition full of vitality full of energy and they can't understand why india is in the situation that it is today why is india 
will not recognize as a great power the first thing is india should ditch its obsession with soft power there is no such thing as soft power soft power is worthless without hard power a superpower can never be a soft superpower it's always a hard superpower so let me explain the difference between soft power and hard power let's say i have 100000 followers on twitter so they will listen to me when i tweet something they will look at it they may like it they may retweet it and if i offer some opinion then they may consider it and they may take it seriously or they may ignore it so at least i am being heard i have some sort of influence on 100000 people that is soft power a little bit of influence now what is hard power let's say that i have a hundred highly trained soldiers who are heavily armed with the latest weapons and they will obey me instantaneously without question that is hard power what does the world respect it respects hard power what can effect change in the world hard power you cannot effect soft changes in the world unless you have the backing of hard power if you have the fallback of going back to hard power if soft power doesn't work that is when soft power is effective so india needs to develop hard power now what is hard power in the geopolitical sense firstly economy but economy is also worthless unless you have a strong military you can have the greatest culture and economy in the world and you can be the richest country in the world you can have one third of the entire world's gdp but if you don't have a strong military it is all pointless so to become a superpower india needs to step by step by step take baby steps start bolstering its military not for the sake of expanding into other people's territories but for the sake of protecting and investing in its own national interests so the most important thing is to have a powerful navy and a powerful air force and to invest in the latest technologies we cannot have a 5 million strong army equipped with the 1980s machine guns we need to invest in robotics we need to invest in artificial intelligence cyber warfare space warfare the latest technologies for the sake of the gods so these are the things that india needs to do india needs to embrace science and technology in order to eventually someday become a superpower it is never too late we have all the talent in the world we have the most intelligent young boys and girls in the world please leverage this incredible god gifted talent so that's what india needs to do to become a superpower so that is uh, the final question out of the pre selected questions let me now take a look at some of your chat questions are you asking me something interesting i will take up a few questions okay one second uh, let me remove this so we know that china is expansionary ambitious to become a superpower respects its native language it industrialized at pace it spends on research and technology but aren't these our drawbacks to work on absolutely correct absolutely spot on there is a lot that india can learn from the chinese they have self respect they follow their own laws they don't look upon the west for inspiration they don't have a constitution that is copy pasted from the west they don't have laws that were left over by the british they do not hate their own culture right 
India's constitution is a is a, is a mishmash of of copy pasted uh, contents from the from the West. India's laws are still the British laws. We are simply copy some modi- modifying some laws. The entire Indian legal system is British. All our institutions are British. So we are still fully colonized, right? I mean, I have to speak in English so that half the country can understand me. That is the situation we are in. The Chinese have self-respect. India's leadership has zero self-respect. India's Ministry of External Affairs gives briefings, news briefings in English. The Chinese give them in Chinese. So that is the difference. So there is a lot we can learn from the Chinese. They respect their native language. They have always invested in science and technology and education. You invest in education, you're investing in the future generations. So you need to have a good education system. India's education system is rotten to the core. So there is a lot that we can learn from China. One may not be a big fan of the Chinese, but there is a lot to respect them for and a lot to learn from them. The Chinese Communist Party is an extremely ambitious organism. It has a great deal of vision and it has a single-minded pursuit of what it seeks. And that's what makes it so successful. So yes, India can learn a few things from the Chinese. I agree. Okay, let me find some more questions. Thank you, Mr. President. Even if we defeat and capture Pakistan, how do we de-radicalize such huge radical population? Should we adopt the CCP's way of dealing with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Okay, you will appoint me as my future special advisor. I am against any kind of forcible... uh, Changes of culture, it has to happen naturally. It has to take its own time. If they want to revert to their indigenous ancestral culture, it is a choice they have to make. We have to remove external influences and let nature take its own course. India did not become very what it is today overnight. It took a thousand years. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. De-radicalization is different from imposing something on somebody. It is not possible to change an entire nation's culture in five years or 10 years or even 20 years. I believe that India, the entire Indian subcontinent should integrate eventually when the time is right. But it cannot be done. It cannot be rushed. It cannot be done overnight. It is a step-by-step process. India needs to have a long-term vision. This is a 100-year marathon. So that is my answer, uh, answer to this question. Okay, Rohan asks, Nehru was so fond of China. What did he do when they attacked us? And why was he so fond of them? Nehru was a socialist and the Chinese claimed to be socialists. That's why he loved them so much. Nehru thought he was one of the great statesmen of the world. And he he believed that Mao Zedong was also a great statesman. So that's why he had this admiration for Mao and for China. And Nehru was... He had this inferiority complex. He was a British-educated, anglicized, anglophilic kind of guy who did nothing ever to to come to power. He was not elected the Prime Minister of India. He was selected the Prime Minister of India over the head of Sardar Patel. We know the the history very well. Mohandas Gandhi arm-twisted the Congress party into appointing Nehru instead of Patel as the Prime Minister, even though Patel got all the votes. So Nehru did not... Well, he saw himself as a great statesman, statesman, but he did not have any significant leadership qualities and he took us down the wrong path and much of what 
uh, ails us today is thanks to his uh, thanks to his policies. Okay, let me see some more. Where would India have to? <clears throat> okay, Chaitanya asks, where would India have to start to build its defense, lands, air, and sea into a scale which would make us the owners and keepers of our waters? We have to start by investing in our own industries. We have the scientists and the engineers and the talented people that we need. We can build everything on our own. We can build our own weaponry, our own systems, our own aircraft, our own submarines, our own ships. We can do it all on our own. We need to stop importing from outside. We need to have a concentrated effort in bolstering defense industries. That's the first step. And then we need to start allocating sufficient amount of funds to produce this weaponry. We need to restructure the armed forces in a way that is the most efficient possible. Currently, the armed forces are still outdated. The, the structuring and the command structure is not the most efficient as of now. Through no fault of the armed forces, it is the bureaucracy that has imposed this stranglehold on the armed forces. If you allow the armed forces to do it on their own, they would do a much, much better job. But it is the politicians and the bureaucrats who control all the decisions. So these are some of the problems. There are some fundamental problems we have to solve. But the main thing is build your own defense industries, restructure the armed forces in the most logical and streamlined fashion and invest money in building up the Navy and the Air Force. Quantity has a quality all of its own. You don't need to buy F-22s and F-35s. Even if you have 1,000 Tejas fighters, which cost hardly anything, it can overwhelm any, um, any Air Force in the world. It's all about utilizing what you have, whatever advantages you have, and maximizing those advantages. So that's what India should do, in my opinion. Okay, let's see some more. Anantam asks, why isn't the world doing anything against China? We gave China religion and trade and they gave us war and expansionary views. Please talk about this. There is this uh, Panchatantra or Jataka tale, right? That um, that if you, if you feed a snake, it's not going to repay you with gratitude. It's going <laughs> to bite you back. That's the answer. And why is the world not doing anything? Because the Chinese have infiltrated every institution in the world. The United Nations, the World Health Organization, they have bought over the Western media, they have bought over Hollywood, so everyone is quiet. As simple as that. They have bribed all the little dictators in Africa, they have bribed the Sri Lankan government, they are bribing their way throughout the world. So that's why China is able to get its get its uh, things done. And that's why the, wild, the, that's why the world is quiet. We gave China everything, we gave the snake milk, and now they are biting us back. We need to introspect about our China policy. That's what needs to be done. You can't blame a serpent for being a serpent, but you can blame yourself for trusting a serpent. That's the moral of the story. Lokesh asks, can we coexist with Pakistan through the means of art, culture, and other means? And is there any similarities between India and Pakistan? 
uh, you see lokesh india and pakistan are the same country they are the, the same people we have the same ancestry we have the same roots it is our land that was given away without our consent okay the people of india never agreed to this land being given away this is our land it has been illegally uh, partitioned eventually over time if not in our lifetime in our descendants lifetime it will become again part of the united subcontinent of united bharat but that is in the future can we coexist with them with, through the means of art culture and other means they don't follow they, they don't believe in the same things that we do their culture is different right culturally they are now alien to us they do not recognize the fact that they their ancestors were indians they don't recognize where they come from they identify more with the arabs and when they did not work they now they are not now trying to identify with the turks so it is impossible to coexist with them on the basis of culture or or art the only thing is we need to currently have a long term plan for re, for for ensuring peace on our borders and to ensure peace we have to look at china first before pakistan pakistan is in no situation to do us any significant deal amount of harm but chinese are so our main focus should be on defanging the chinese that should be the main focus right now okay one more question and then we will be done Ashwin asks how can india counter the chinese string of pearls in the indian ocean the answer is very simple ashwin build a strong navy build a strong naval force and then the chinese will not be able to uh, build that stranglehold that they are constructing right now okay since uh, okay one final question this is from rohan why do i feel that india's major problem is the population it's more about the quantity than the quality life our people has here yes population is a major problem it is not a demographic dividend it's a demographic disaster if it continues like this india needs to find ways of of slowing down its population growth the most effective way of slowing population growth is to have better quality of life look at any developed country the population growth is always low the the fertility rate is always low in a highly developed country it's only in the poor countries that the fertility rate is very high so the moment you your your standards of living increase and you become more prosperous the need to have 50 children goes away so what india needs to do is yes definitely control its population bring it under control but not drastically the like the chinese have done the chinese are facing a genuine demographic disaster the majority of their population will be elderly very soon and the people of china live strange ridiculous lives they don't have cousins they don't have brothers they don't have sisters they don't have uncles they don't have aunts these are very strange lives these people live this is an artificially truncated and and uh, mangled society and uh, that, that that's the cause of some of the social problems you have in china so india needs to do it judiciously population is a significant problem overpopulation i mean but we cannot drastically reduce the population by any means we should never do that let it come down gradually organically naturally and we need to have the right policies in place to do this all right thank you everybody this was a wonderful discussion some great questions i will do this again and we'll take some more
interesting questions about geopolitics. But for tonight, it is the end. So I will see you tomorrow, same time. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night. Have a great day. Bye.